Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Now, I, really, I really intended on moving on and getting um, farther into the story of Abraham, but we're going to park today. I just couldn't quite get out of Genesis 19 yet. And so we're going to have two texts today. I'm going to read uh, from Genesis chapter 19, and I'm going to also read from Luke chapter 17. And we're going through the, through the book of Genesis, and we're looking at the gospel in Genesis. Remember, the gospel doesn't begin at Matthew 1.1. The gospel begins with in the beginning. The gospel is throughout the scripture. God is the gospel. Christ is the gospel. His word is the gospel, and God has given us the gospel, not only in the written word, but in types and shadows, and everything that he has done in creation, he is communicating to us the truth of the gospel. So Genesis chapter 9, let's, uh, let's look at verse 16. So Abraham and Sarah have been promised a child, and um, you know, in the story of Abraham, Abraham and Lot split ways, and Lot goes to the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's living in the city of, of Sodom. And God uh, comes down to Abraham and, and with the angels, and he pronounces the promise to Abraham, and he's getting ready to send these angels to Sodom to bring it about its destruction. And Abraham intercedes with God on behalf of of Lot. Because Abraham knows when God brings destruction to the city, his nephew is living there. And so we see this intercession taking place. Um, Abraham interceding on behalf of Lot, which is a picture of Christ who intercedes on our behalf. It wasn't that Lot deserved to be saved any more than we deserve to be saved. But, but here is Abraham interceding on behalf of Lot, which is a beautiful picture of how Christ intercedes on our behalf. And so <clears throat> the angels go to Sodom and they are in Lot's house. And you know the story where the men of, of Sodom are trying to get Lot to send the, the two angels out. <clears throat> and so we're going to pick up the story there as they're getting ready to uh, leave. And they say, look, get yourself together. We're getting out of here because God is going to destroy this city. So let's look at verse 16. Let's, let's start reading there. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you had shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. It is not, is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken." Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven, out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him. And she became a pillar of salt. Okay, now hold, uh, hold your place there in Genesis. And uh, let's go over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, the 17th chapter. And let's read the words of Jesus. 
Let's begin in verse 28, Luke 17, 28. Oops, I better get the right gospel. Luke 17, 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is, who, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two will be grinding together, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two will be in the field, and one will be taken, and the other left. And the answer and said to him, Where, Lord? And so he said to them, Wherever the body is there the eagles will be gathered together so let's uh let's look at this we'll go back to genesis and we'll kind of keep luke handy so we're looking at the gospel how does this convey the gospel to us and we see uh in this story presented to us in Genesis, and then the story recounted again by the Lord Jesus in, recorded in Luke's gospel. Uh, now, this kind of communicates a couple of things to us that we should pay attention to. Number one, Jesus is quoting Genesis. He's quoting this story. He speaks of it as though it really happened. You know why? Because it really happened. <laughs> Uh, this has kind of been one of these points of criticism. A lot of, a lot of people have said, well, there really wasn't a Sodom and Gomorrah, and God didn't really do that. Um, but Jesus is quoting uh, the Scripture here. He's quoting the Old Testament. And he's quoting, in particular, this story of Lot, Lot's rescue out of Sodom. And he's, he's likening this to uh, our times, the last days. And so when we see the story of Lot being brought out of Sodom, it communicates something to us about our salvation. Our salvation is a calling out of something. And at the very same time, it is a calling into something. So think about, um, think about the children of, of Israel. When we get to the book of Exodus, we'll look at this in depth. The children of Israel who called out of Egypt were, were never called out of something that were not being called into something. So the story of our salvation is an entrance into Christ while at the very same time being an exodus out of sin and death and the old nature. So Sodom and Gomorrah were these cities that God rained his judgment down upon. And we see that Lot lived in the city of Sodom and God in his grace and mercy goes to Sodom. He sends the angels to Sodom and he takes Lot and his family out of Sodom. And it's a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of us being taken out of sin and death and condemnation of the old nature and being brought into Christ. So in order to live, we must come out of that thing that God has judged and condemned. This is the picture we see with Lot. So understand this, that God didn't send the angels to fix Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities on the plain. God didn't send the angels to, to help them become better. God sent the angels to do one thing and one thing only, and that was to judge that thing which God condemned. Now, that sounds harsh, but if we don't understand this in relation to our salvation, 
we'll just think that there's just this mean, grumpy God up in heaven who is just in the business of raining judgment down on things that he doesn't like. And that's not the point at all. God really did rain judgment down on a city and on a people who are wicked. But we need to understand what is the greater purpose? What is the greater message that God is showing us here? It's not a message of God's grumpiness and meanness and judgment. It's a message of God's grace and God's mercy. This is a picture of our salvation. What has God called us out of that he has condemned? The answer, the short answer to that is our old nature. It's our flesh. We remember when we looked at Noah's flood and we said the flood of Noah is a picture of our salvation. God said, I will destroy all flesh. And God meant that. But yet we see, what did God do? God saved a whole, he saved the world through the life of one man. So God took one man, Noah, he counted him righteous And those who were joined to Noah were also saved by Noah, their relationship to Noah. How are we saved? We're not saved because we're righteous. We're saved because we have been joined to one who is righteous. So we see God promised in the flood, I'm going to destroy all flesh. Yet he related to Noah as as a type of Christ and he saved the world through one man. Now we come to Sodom and Gomorrah and we see another picture of Christ and his salvation in that God had judged the wickedness of man just like he did with the flood. And he said, look, I did not come down to to save the world, to fix the world. He didn't do that at the flood. He came down to judge it. He condemned it and he judged it and he brought a flood. he, He destroyed it. But he took out that which was to come out that was his grace. That was his salvation. He did the same thing here in Sodom. He goes, he sends the angels not to give a last warning to Sodom, not to fix Sodom, but to take out of Sodom that which God would save and bring his judgment. And it's important for us to see this picture in its proper perspective so that we understand what God has done in saving us. So we understand that Sodom is a type of the world. Just like Egypt is a type of the world. What God brings you out of, he separates from himself. And he does not preserve it or save it, but he judges it and he destroys it. So he said that the flood was a type of the cross. In the cross, John 12, 31, Jesus said, Now the judgment of this world has come. Now the Son of Man shall be lifted up. Now is the judgment of this world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Now is the judgment. How did God judge the world? At the cross, he judged the world. At the cross, he said, I am going to eliminate all flesh. Now, he didn't do that through a flood like he did in Noah's day. He didn't do that by by literally killing everybody and destroying life. But he really and truly did that in a real way in that now, how are, we, how are we invited to come to salvation? Jesus said, if you desire to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. What does that cross do? That cross crucifies us. It cuts away. It takes away. It destroys our flesh. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. What happened when... What happens when we're crucified with Christ? There is a destruction of the flesh, a taking away, a putting away of the flesh. This is what's pictured here with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so how do we, how do we understand this picture of salvation? This is a picture of how we must leave the old and come into the new. God has judged the old in order to... To bring, into, to bring in the new. So our salvation is a calling out and at the very same time, a calling into. And when God calls us out, when there, listen, when we are called out, when we come out of the old and we're brought into the new, it necessitates a change. There must, 
be a chain that takes place. If you have the old and then the new, it's just understood there's going to be a change, right? Otherwise, you can't call the old new if the old is still the old and there's no change. And we can call it new and we can call it different and we can call it changed. But the reality is until the old becomes new, it's not changed. It doesn't matter what name you put on it. It doesn't matter how you want to describe it or how you want to think of it. If the old does not become new, it has not changed. But if the old has truly become new, there, there must be a change that has taken place. So Lot was called to leave Sodom and not turn back. He was called to go to the mountains. Read the Psalms and it talks about Mount Zion. Jesus often went to the mountain. The Bible talks about the rock of our salvation, the, the rock who, who uh, was cut out of the mountain, who came to the earth. We see this vision in Daniel and this rock that crushed this, uh, this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. This rock, it says, grew and became a great mountain and it, 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 it overthrew all kingdoms of the earth. Who is that mountain? Christ is that mountain. Lot was called to leave the old and go to the mountains, just like we're called out of this world to the mountain of our salvation, to the rock of our salvation, who is the Lord Jesus. And so this is a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of us being called out of the world to the mountain of the Lord. We're called to leave one thing for another. We're called to leave the old for the new. We're called to leave death for life. Realize that's what, that's what was happening with Lot. Those angels came to Lot and they said, you must leave here because this is death. This is your death. If you stay here, you stay in death. You must leave this place of death and go to life. That's what God does when he calls us to salvation. That is our salvation. We are called out of death and we're called into life. So we're called to leave death for life. We're called to leave the old way for the new and the living way. We're called to leave Adam and come into Christ. We're called to leave the first man and come into the second man, the old creation, and become a new creation. So when Lot was told, look here in verse, in verse 16 of Genesis 19, actually in verse 17, the angels tell Lot, do not look behind you. Guess what happened to Lot's wife? Now remember, Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. When Jesus tells us to remember something, we probably should remember it, right? Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Why do you think Jesus said to remember Lot's wife? What was the warning? Don't look back. Don't turn back. Now, when we read this account in Genesis, you see that when did Lot's wife look back? Well, she looked back when the destruction started falling on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If, if I had just been literally pulled out of a city and told that God from heaven was going to rain fire and brimstone down and destroy this whole plain and all these cities. And, and it starts happening just about sunrise. I'd be pretty tempted to look back and, and, and see this, watch this event. It, it had to be something, you know, pretty amazing. Now here again, if we're not careful, we're going to misjudge who God is. Because there's a way we can read this and say, man, God just seems a little bit unreasonable here. Because this had to be a great and awesome sight to behold. And yet, God didn't have enough grace for this woman just who wanted to, to see this amazing event take place. See, that's not what was really happening here. Her looking back had nothing to do with her wanting to see the fireworks. Her looking back 
had everything to do with her heart. She looked back because her heart had been turned back since before they left the city. She obviously didn't want to leave the city. That's where her life was. That's where her identity was. And it, and it doesn't speak of her curiosity. It speaks of her heart. Think about the children of Israel who come out of Egypt. They really were out of Egypt. But when we read the Exodus account, what do we read about them? I mean, they're, they're barely out of Egypt. And they're already moaning and complaining about having to leave. I mean, when they see the armies of Pharaoh coming, they're, they're ready to kill Moses because look what you've done to us. You brought us out of Egypt put us up here against the Red Sea and now we're going to all die. We'd have been better off staying in Egypt. I can't believe I even followed you out here, Moses. Then, then they see the miracle of God parting the Red Sea. They get into the wilderness to make their journey and it's this constant. You know why? Because their hearts were never turned to the Lord. Their hearts were always turned to Egypt. Lot's wife turned around, not because she was curious. She turned around because her heart had never turned to the Lord. Her heart was turned to the wrong thing. Jesus said, Remembers, remember Lot's wife. Why? Because it's a warning about where our heart is. Because where our heart is, is eventually going to cause us to turn in that direction. So Lot's wife turned back to that which she longed for and considered home. Lot did not look back to what God saved him from. Lot looked ahead to what God had saved him to. Now, we, we, we're not dealing with this whole story here. Uh, there's a lot in the story. <laughs> there's a lot in the story of Lot. No pun intended there. But... Uh, and we're not dealing with all aspects of this story. But if you read that, you read that account, uh, Lot looks like pretty much of a despicable guy in offering his daughters to this mob outside of his door. Yet, remember we said this, that Peter called Lot righteous and said that Lot was tormented day in and day out by the wickedness of Sodom. So, uh, the fact that God saved Lot and saved his family, saved his two daughters, and saved him, speaks of Peter's affirmation of Lot's righteousness. The fact that Lot did not look back and did not turn back speaks something about Lot. So Lot looked ahead to what God had saved him to. So what is it that we need to learn from and take from this story? If this is given to us as an example, remember Paul writes this, he said all these things in the Old Testament, the children of Israel and all their trials and tribulations, these things were given to us as an example. So what is the example that God gave us when he gave us Lot? Because God did that. God created Lot. God wrote Lot's story. God put Lot on the earth. And he recorded this for us as an example. So what is the example that we're to take when we consider Lot? When we consider that Lot did not turn back toward that thing which God had brought him out of. Lot's wife turned back. But Lot didn't turn back. I think one of the things that we need to take from this is that we need to stop looking and turning back toward those things that God has brought us out of. We need to keep looking ahead to all that God has and is bringing us into. Not that we should never recall the past, not that we should never learn from our mistakes, but there's a difference between learning from your mistakes and recalling the past in a way that glorifies God 
versus the way the children of Israel recalled their past in the wilderness. They longed for their past. They longed for the meat pots of Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt because they didn't like the wilderness. There was something about Lot's wife that caused her to long for and look back to Sodom. The hardness that manifests on the outside of Lot's wife, she became a pillar of salt, I think speaks of the hardness that was in her heart. Just like Israel's longing for Egypt in the wilderness, the Bible says it communicated that they were a hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. What is it when we want to live in the past, when we want to look to the past, when we won't let go of the past? There is something there that God wants us to learn. God is telling us, stop turning back to the past. Stop looking to the past. Stop turning your heart to that which I have brought you out of. Because when God brings you out of what he brought you out of, God wants to put away. He don't want you to live in that any longer. That's why he brought you out of it. He wants to bring you out and he wants to put it away. He wants to destroy it for all practical purposes so that you cannot go back to it. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They couldn't go back to it. No one could go back to it because it was gone. This really is what Paul is trying to communicate to us concerning the cross. When we are crucified with Christ, this is why he says in Romans 6, 11, he says, indeed, count yourself dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. Reckon yourself dead indeed to sin and alive to God. What he's saying there is something really has happened. There has really been a destruction of something that is not there anymore. Stop living in that thing that is not there anymore. Live in what God has brought you into. Live in Christ. Live in the life that is Christ. Don't live in the death that was your flesh, your old nature, your old way. We have the memory of that, just like Lot, no doubt, had the memory of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just like Noah, no doubt, had the memory of the earth before the flood. He lived, he lived what? He lived 500, 600 years. He lived 600 years on that earth. But then one day he comes out of an ark and that earth that he lived on for 600 years is gone. He only has the memory of it. When you were brought into Christ, when you were crucified with Christ, something really was put away. Something was really destroyed. It really died. You still have the memory of it. But you're not to live in that any longer. You're not to live in that way any longer. You're not to live according to that any longer. Now, you are to live according to Christ. So we go back to the Genesis story. When God creates everything and he says each, he ordains that this is the, the way the created order will be. Everything reproduces after its own kind. Like begets like. So when you're born again into Christ... And you are righteous and you are holy because Christ who is your righteousness and Christ who is your holiness, that is the good seed that's been planted in the fertile ground of your heart. God made the ground. God planted the seed. God put it there. Now, what is supposed to be reproducing, producing, coming from your life? Like is to beget like. That seed that was planted in you, that's what should be coming out of you. You're not commanded to live holy so that you can earn your salvation. You're commanded to live holy because if you are holy, then the holiness should come out of your life. You're not commanded to live righteous so that you can work your way up to heaven and, and make it and have eternal life. You are commanded to be righteous because righteousness has been planted in the good soil of your heart. And if righteousness has been planted in you and righteousness defines who you are because Christ is your identity, then that is what must come out of our lives. This is why the Bible says, don't look back. This is why Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Don't look back. Luke 
Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Lot's wife turned back. The children of Israel left Egypt, but were turned to it in their heart. We are called out of the corruption and the lust of the old, having been called into a new creation in Christ. Christ came to bring out all that will come out and to destroy everything else. Our salvation is our removal from that which is under God's condemnation. When God said in Noah's day, I will destroy all flesh, it was only a type and a shadow of what God would really do through the cross. We see this. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.16. We know no man any longer according to the flesh. So God doesn't know us. God doesn't relate to us in the flesh. He only knows us according to the Spirit. So he put away all flesh. Our salvation is our removal from that. And if we are in Christ, we are no longer in the flesh, but we are in the Spirit. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ who walk according to the Spirit. Verse 9 gives us how, it shows us how we are to understand that verse. Verse 9 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. You have the Spirit of Christ. Or let me ask that question another way. Have you been saved? Or let me ask that question another way. Have you been born again? Because if you have been born again, you belong to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, you have the Spirit of Christ. And if you have the Spirit of Christ, the Bible says then the old man, the carnal nature, has been crucified and put away and you are now a new creation, and God doesn't know you according to the old any longer. He knows you now according to the new. You're not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. And you are in union, joined in relationship to God the Father in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So coming out of the old must be with our head and our heart turned to the new. Because God doesn't just change our exterior, he changes us from the inside out. The first thing God does is he gives us a new heart. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let's look at, let's look at Romans chapter 10. Let's go there. This is not in our Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. Let's let's look at verse 9. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Probably many of you are very familiar with this scripture. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, we often quote that scripture, present that scripture as a formula for salvation. Listen, salvation is not a formula, okay? You need to get that out of your thinking. Salvation is not a formula. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you'll do that, if you'll do what the scripture says, you will be saved. That's true. But have you ever asked anyone to do that? Have you ever told anyone that? I've, I've told lots of people that I've said to them if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart the Bible says you will be saved would you do that with me right now 
Yes. So confess after me, and I have them confess the Lord Jesus. And I'll say, did you believe in your heart? Yes. Okay, then you're saved. Well, that's true. Or maybe it's not true. Because the fact that they did that and they followed the formula I gave them doesn't mean that they were saved. You hear what I'm saying? Your salvation is not dependent upon a formula you follow. Your salvation is dependent upon a God who is going to give you a heart change. If we really, if we read this scripture very closely, we see this is exactly what Paul is saying. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. How do you believe? You notice what Paul does not say. He doesn't say for with the head, one believes to righteousness. He didn't say with the head. He said with the heart. We spend a lot of time trying to work on people's heads. We sit there and we go through scripture and try to convince them to believe this, convince them to believe that, and give them reasons why they should believe this and why they shouldn't believe that, why this is true and why that's not true. And we're, we're sitting there having a, an argument trying to work on their head. And if we convince them in their head that they should go ahead and follow the formula that I'm fixing to give you, now are you ready to, to do what the Bible says? Are you ready to, to, to pray with me to say these, these words after me? Okay, yeah, I guess so. See, if, if, all, if all I've done is convince them in their head that they should go ahead and say this and, and say the right things, if they're only convinced here, that won't save them. Because it's not with the head that one believes unto righteousness. It's with the heart. Jesus didn't say it from the, from the abundance of the head the mouth speaks. He said from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Now, I know we say a lot of things from our head, right? But listen, eventually... You listen to people long enough, and their words will tell you what's really in their heart. That's why if you want to develop any communication skill, listening is the best one to develop. Because if you can learn to listen to people, people will tell you exactly what you need to know. They'll, they'll tell you how to pray for them. They'll tell you how to talk. They'll tell you all kinds of things and won't even know it. Why? Because if people talk long enough, it's just, it's just a thing. What's in their heart's going to come out. salvation it begins in our heart this was Lot's wife's problem her heart had never turned from Sodom this was the problem of the children of Israel in the wilderness that generation that all died except for two people Joshua and Caleb their problem was their heart had never turned from Egypt This is the importance of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation for the Jew first and for the Greek. Also, it's the power of God to salvation. This is the message that will not penetrate your head. It will penetrate your heart. We're often afraid of a God who says, I will destroy all flesh. We're afraid of a God who says, you better get out of this city because I'm getting ready to rain fire and brimstone from heaven and bring utter destruction. Listen, there are a lot of people. I'm not talking about just people in the world. There's a lot of Christians who don't want to believe in a God like that because he's scary. To them and so we just want to pretend like that God doesn't really exist the problem with that is this if we pretend that God doesn't exist then we miss the whole point of our salvation if we miss the purpose of God destroying the earth by flood if we miss the purpose of God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone if we miss the purpose of God's judgment shown throughout scripture we miss the gospel we miss our salvation. We miss, we, we think, that, and this is exactly what we see happening in our world. Now, it's not new to our world. It's just that we live in the world. This is our time of visitation on this earth, right? Do you understand that what's happening on planet earth right now is not new? 
the things that, listen, if they would have had Facebook and, and Twitter and um, cable news and satellite TV uh, back in Sodom and Gomorrah's day, back in, pick any time in history, if they would have had all of that, we would see that the world has been dealing with the same sin and wickedness since the beginning. We just think because this is our time and we think we're better than everybody else in history and we're more advanced than everybody else, that's also the live evolution. Because we got to keep getting better and better, right? This is humanism. This is man who has become God and we're evolving to this place of supremacy. There's no one greater than man. We've become our own God. But the reality is we are the same wicked, depraved, failed human since the garden when Adam sinned. And we're not dealing with anything that man hasn't dealt with throughout his history on planet earth. We just get to see it live and in color in real time now. I mean, you know, it's really kind of morbid. You can go on the internet and almost see in real time someone getting their head cut off. This is the depravity of man. This is what God has called us out of. God hasn't taken us out of the world. And we go back to the, our scripture in, in Luke. And we see these uh, two are grinding and one is taken. Two lying in a bed and one is... And, and what, have we, what have we come up with that? We've come up with a rapture theology. We've come up with an escape plan. And we read those scriptures... And all we see is an escape plan. And that's not what those scriptures are about. Those scriptures are warning. They're warning us. That we need to turn our hearts to God. We need to stop living in the past. We need to stop living in what God has condemned and judged and brought us out of. And we need to live in the present. We need to live in life. We need to live in Christ. We need to look to Christ. And if we have truly been saved, that's exactly what we will do. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get there immediately overnight. God knows how to get you there. So coming out of the old means that we come out with a head and a heart turned to the new. We're no longer to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove the will of God. Let's read that scripture, Romans 12, 2. I pretty much just quoted it to you, but let me read it to you exactly as it appears in the scripture. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, you should mark that word prove there, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Why does Paul tell us to not be conformed, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind? He says you should do that, that you might prove what? That you might prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. God wants his will to be revealed through your life. And God's will cannot be revealed through your life if you're still living and turned to the past. Because God wants that put away and he wants to bring you into something new. Let's read another scripture. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 through 8. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. How many people believe that today? That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. What would you rather have right now? All the gold in California or all the faith in California? Now, I know, we all know what we're supposed to say, right? Huh. We're, like, we're like Lot's wife. 
yeah, honey, I want that, I want that faith. But the whole time, my heart's really turned to the gold. I, I, I want you to, I want you to catch the power of this. This is an amazing statement. And I don't think Peter is just trying to be sensational here. I think Peter, along with the other apostles, and many that we can read about in the history of the early church, current church, understood the value of their faith. Do you understand the value of your faith? Do you understand the value of what God has gifted you with when he gave you faith to believe in Jesus? And what is going to determine whether that faith is genuine or not? Well, Peter says it's going to be the testing of it. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you love. Listen, this was written almost 2,000 years ago, but it describes us today. These believers did not see Jesus. They only heard about Jesus. They only read about Jesus. We have not seen Jesus physically like Peter did, but we have heard of Jesus and we have read of Jesus and we have by the Spirit seen Jesus in the same way these believers saw Jesus. In the same way Abraham saw Jesus. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. I want you to see that, that word tested there, though it is tested by fire, is the same word in Romans 12 too, and it says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Your faith will be tested. You know why? Because God says it must be. Why must your faith be tested? Because it must be determined whether it is genuine or not. Why? Because God doesn't know whether it is or isn't? No. It's not about whether God knows whether it is or isn't. The question is, do you know whether it is or isn't? And genuine faith will ultimately reveal the will of God. What is the will of God? The will of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The will of God is Christ in you. The testing of your faith is going to reveal Christ in you. Too many Christians are living with turned hearts. Too many have their hearts in Egypt while wandering around in a spiritual wilderness, thinking or hoping that in time God will Bring them into the promised land. If I just wander around here long enough, you know, uh, surely God will let me in one of these days. I hear so many people who profess faith in Christ talk about their hope that one day. Listen, John writes in his first epistle, he says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know that you have eternal life. If you don't understand what your salvation is, how you came to, to possess it, what God not only called you into, but what he called you out of, if you, don't begin, if you don't have a comprehension of those things, if you don't begin to understand those things, all you're gonna have is this ambiguous spiritual philosophy. You're gonna be wandering around in a wilderness hoping that one day God might let you into his promised land. And that's not what Jesus died for. And that's not what God wants you to have. God wants you to have a certain hope. God wants you to definitely leave behind what he has judged and condemned. And he wants you to come into the new, the new creation, the new life that he made a way for you to have in Christ Jesus. He gave you faith to believe in that. And the testing of your faith, trial by fire, that is the thing that's going to determine whether your faith is genuine or not. That is the thing that's going to cause all of those other things that we still have inside of us, the things that nobody else can see. 
but that you know are there. When God takes you through the fire, when God takes you through the trial, he is bringing to the surface those things that we just want to suppress and keep hidden. Now, we do a pretty good job because we can put the face on and we can act and we can know how to talk the language and we know how to do all the things where outward, outwardly everything looks great, right? And, and occasionally we'll, out, we'll let people in on, you know, the things because, of course, nobody lives a perfect life and everybody's got some troubles. But, but I'm not talking about those things that you let come to the surface just to make the show seem more realistic. I'm talking about the things that are really down deep inside of you that you don't want to deal with. But God says, I love you so much that I'm going to make you deal with it. I'm talking about things that, that are down there that, that you've almost forgotten that they're even there. And God says, I'm going to take you through this fiery trial and it's going to bring to the surface something that must be taken out of your life. Everything that's not genuine, it's going to pass away. That which is genuine, it shall remain. But our brand of Christianity in America, we don't like to deal with things like that. Our brand of Christianity is the American dream. Health, wealth, and prosperity. Let's just pretend like every day is a great day, and if it's not a great day, just lie and say that it is anyways. Eat more chocolate. Drink more alcohol. Eat more ice cream. Go to the movie. Let's just, oh, let's forget reality. Let's just go to the movie and get lost in some, you know, fictional fantasy world. Hey, I do the same thing. I'm not talking about anything that I don't do. But here's what I'm saying. God, God loves us enough that he's not going to let us stay there. That's a good thing. So when Peter writes about the, the fiery trial, it, it, look, he says, He's talking about rejoicing in the midst of fiery trials. He's talking about rejoicing in the midst of being tested. Paul talks about a more eternal way to glory, these light afflictions. Now, he could say that because you read all that Paul has been through. He, he, can, he can say light afflictions because none of us are going to go through the things that Paul went through. But sometimes when we say those things to somebody or we imply that to somebody... You know, I'll look at someone and, and, and I'll, think, I'll think to myself, if I don't even say that, like, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. You, haven't, you don't know what I've been through. That's not the point. The point is God knows what you've been through. God knows what you're still holding on to. God knows which direction your heart's turned to. And God in his love and his mercy wants to turn your heart in the right direction. God in his love and his mercy wants to pry your fingers loose from the things you refuse to let go of because he says child it will be better if you let me have that versus you hanging on to it the proving and the testing take place to reveal that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in our hearts and in our minds God has called us out of the old for good reason because it has been judged and condemned and there is no hope for us in the old only certain death and destruction. So God calls us to stop holding on to the old while trying to possess the new. It's impossible and God in his grace will not allow us to do that. We see this picture in Sodom where God sent the angels and the angels literally took them by the hand and pulled them out. If God needs to do it, God will take you by the hand and pull you out of whatever it is. God wants you to come to know His will that is perfect, acceptable, Amen. And we don't come to that place through ourselves. Come to that place in Christ. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification 
and redemption. There's a lot that we don't have to try to figure out for ourselves. God has revealed it to us in his word. We just need to have the courage to accept it and to apply it and to walk it out in our lives. He gives us the grace to do that. So here's my challenge to you. Challenge is that you turn your heart away from those things that God has brought you out of. And turn your heart and turn your head to Christ and all that is new before you. To let go of those things that you find hard to let go of. To let go of your pride, to let go of unforgiveness, to let go of past hurts, to let go of selfishness and self-centeredness, to let go of those things that are contrary to who Christ is. And let God do his conforming and transforming work in your life through the power of his spirit. Molding and shaping you into the very image of his son. And in the unpleasantness of that process, trust God. And when it seems like that process has no end, trust God. And when it seems like no one else understands, and they probably don't, trust God, because he does. Let's all stand. Who's going to do this? God's going to do this. He's not going to do it without you. He's going to do it in spite of you. And in spite of me. This is the hope, promise, grace, the mercy of our God. Let's pray. God, give us the grace to turn our hearts from our past, from the old, and turn them to the new. Give us the grace to turn our hearts to Christ. To the good future. And the good hope. That you've given to us in your son. Give us the grace God. To realize that it will not be in our own strength. In our own power. Not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. You are. You are doing this. And you will complete this. For Lord, you have promised that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it even until the day of Jesus Christ. God, give us eyes to see as we read the scripture hearts and minds and ears to take in the truth of your gospel on every page of the scripture, old and new. Give us the grace to be transformed by the power of your gospel through the work of your spirit. Give us grace for ourselves and give us grace for those around us, God. We thank you for that, Lord. Be glorified through our lives, God, we pray. Let your will be done in us, even as it is in heaven. Make your church a glorious church. That the world would know, Father, truly sent the Son. Take our lives, God. Use them for your glory. Give us the courage to let go of our lives. Give us the courage, God, to embrace our faith as more precious than any amount of gold and silver. 
Give us the courage, God, to be used for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.